0: morning, everyone. Great to have you here. Thanks for braving the weather. Uh, and welcome, kids. We have some uh, of our grade school uh, students in uh, the gatherings with us this morning, which uh, is great. Glad you're here. I really think it's important to have uh, some opportunities for the kids to come and gather with us uh, to, to see what it's like to be here uh, with the rest of us, not uh, just in Sunday school, though there of course they 're teaching about jesus as well so we 're glad you 're here uh, don 't worry if there 's a little extra noise, hopefully you have when your clipboards. you can fill that out, get candy at the end um, it 'll be good So today, I want to begin uh, with uh, a story that is uh, maybe applicable for the younger people in the room, although I think uh, all of us probably were in school at one point or another, so hopefully we can identify. Um, I went to junior high school uh, back when I was in school in Coquitlam. We had junior high school, grade 8 to 10. Went to Millard Junior High. And in Millard, there was a teacher uh, who was uh, pretty much universally disliked. Like people, he was not anyone's favorite teacher. Uh, I'm going to call him Mr. Johnson. Uh, Mr. Johnson was not well-liked for some pretty obvious reasons. So he taught math, he taught gym, uh, but he was a pretty grumpy guy. He kind of just always looked grumpy, always had his pants hiked up. He would, he would yell fairly frequently. Uh, he was the kind of teacher uh, who said, here was one of his rules, he had a lot of rules. Uh, his rule was, at the end of class, uh, if the bell rang and you moved a muscle, detention right away. He said, the bell doesn't dismiss you, I dismiss you, is what he said. So in his class, you would just be like, this the bell would ring, be silent, and then he would say... You may pick up your things, and we can pick up, you know, pack up our things. He was just that kind of a teacher. I remember one time, uh, so kids were really, as you might imagine, kind of rude to Mr. Johnson. Certainly behind his back, they would tell stories about him. Uh, but I remember this one time, this, this kid. I was in math class, and some kid I don't know who it was, but he walked by the class and just kind of poked his head in it and said, "Hey, Mr. Johnson!" Yelled and ran down the hall, <laughs> out the door. All we were all like this. He ran. You look, couldn't find out who it was we thought that was the best. We thought that was the most hilarious thing. And and why not, right? Our thinking was, M- Mr. Johnson is so mean to us, why wouldn't we be mean back to him? Why would we listen to him if he's going to treat us this way? That's, that's what you should do, right? When you have a horrible teacher. That's actually what our text is going to talk about today. How we should respond when we have horrible teachers or For those older uh, here, horrible bosses, or anyone in authority over us who is treating us in just a horrible way, how how should we respond? That's that's our question for today. And really, this is going to be a continuation of last week. Uh, Last week was about submission to government. Remember, Peter was talking about the kinds of good deeds that we can do as Christians in the church. The people will see how we're behaving and glorify God. And his answer, his big answer to one of the best ways that we can uh, show people who we follow and who we are is submitting to authority. So last week was government. Today, uh, it's in areas like, like school, like the workplace... So we're just going to dive in. Uh, our text this morning is 1 Peter 2, verses 18 to 25. I'm going to read it through and then we'll, we'll start to unpack it. Uh, so here is here's God's word to us this morning. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let me just pause to pray for a moment. Lord God, we are thankful for your word. Thankful for this word to us this morning. I pray that we would have humble hearts. Lord, that we would allow your word to, to push us and shape us. I pray, Lord, in spite of my own sin, that you would use my words to be a blessing to us as a church, and I do pray, Lord, that through this, we would, we would come to know you more. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so there's three points for our sermon this morning, but before we get to them, I need to answer a question, an important question when you come to this text, and the, the important question is, is this text about Slavery. The reason I ask that is because of the word servant. In some of your translations, the NIV, uh, they will translate that word slave. So, verse 18 ends up being slaves, uh, be subject to your masters with all respect, something like that. And, and that, that sounds very wrong, if you were to read that. And the question would naturally come up well, well how should we understand this? Is this talking about you know, slavery as, as we know it? And the short answer is no. The short answer is that this is not talking about slavery as we know it today. It's not talking about the kind of slavery from the 18th century where black people were kidnapped in their country from all over the the world and brought to America, forced to work in plantations and farms under horrendous conditions, under violence, uh, threat of their life, all so that uh, white people from England and America could get richer. That kind of slavery is clearly condemned in the Bible. And, and the clearest example of it is in First Timothy. First Timothy chapter one, verses eight to ten. Here uh, Paul is talking about um, about the law, about the law of God, and about those who break the law of God. So here's what he writes, this is verse eight. He says, The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. So all those that go against what God says is best, he's gonna say, Well, here's how they act. Right, There are those who strike their fathers and mothers, murderers, sexually immoral, homosexuality, and enslavers. Notice the word. Enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. That word enslaver means to kidnap someone and to enslave them, to to use them for your own purposes. And clearly what the Bible is saying here is that is sin. In fact, the whole point of the the teaching of the Christian message, the, the good news of the gospel, is to free human beings from every form of enslavement. And in fact, it was Christians uh, in the 18th century, like William Wilberforce, who who finally pushed back in England against slavery and and finally had it outlawed. And today, the Christian church continues to advocate for those who are in slavery around the world. Uh, Ministries like International Justice Ministries are doing the work that we should be doing to, to seek to combat this kind of injustice. So the Bible is not for slavery, but... The events of the Bible happened at a time in human history when slavery was a reality. And so it speaks into those difficult situations. So we need to understand that there is a difference between, uh, when it talks about slavery here, a difference between the 18th century slavery that we're more familiar with and the 1st century slavery in Rome that we're hearing about here. 18th century slavery was primarily racially based. It was a permanent Horrendous situation, if you were a slave, you basically would die a slave, but in first century Rome, there are some differences. For one thing, there were people from all ethnicities that were, were slaves, or they would, they would more be called bondservants. This word actually in the text is house servant, is technically in the Greek. So people from all ethnicities, black, white, Gentile, Jew, most of the time it was for economic reasons. That they were now a, a bond servant because they had a debt to pay off. Because they, for some reason, they, they, they had the wherewithal economically. They needed to be in this kind of a situation. But it was almost always temporary. Meaning you, you could earn your freedom. Uh, they, were, they were paid in that sense. They were very often respected and educated. They had prominent positions in, in households or businesses. So, for example, Joseph in the Old Testament. He was a slave, right? Sold into slavery and yet came to rule. Uh, most of Egypt, same thing with Daniel, we looked at last week. He was essentially a slave from Babylon and yet had a position of, of prominence. Now, of course, there were still abuses of power, and the Bible speaks to that too. Here is um, here's Paul's instruction in Colossians 4 to, to masters, those who had bondservants. He says, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So that, that's the Bible speaking to this, this situation. It's not ideal situation. Speaking into it so that it would be just. But Peter knew that there were many corrupt and sinful masters. And so he wanted to give the church instruction. Remember, he's writing a letter to the churches in, in Asia Minor. And he knows that there are those in the church that were bondservants. And he knows that there were those that had horrible masters. And so he wanted to give some instruction about what is the right way to respond in this situation. Now, we don't have uh, masters like that, uh, but at times we do have very difficult and very harsh people in authority over us. And so we also need wisdom from God to know how how do we respond in those kinds of situations. That's what this is speaking to for us. So here's the main question. I'll phrase it this way. How should we respond to difficult leaders? How do we respond to hostile, angry, unjust, corrupt leaders Three answers, the first one is this, we should submit to them with respect. We should submit with respect. Verse 18, really couldn't be clearer. Be subject to your masters with all respect. Uh, That word means the same thing as it did last week, to submit, to listen, to obey. But the respect part uh, sort of connects with what it said last week about honoring those in government. Here we are to show respect to those who have authority over us. Uh, Remember verse 13 last week said, be subject to every human institution. So government, boss, teacher, coach, parent. Notice it doesn't say, be subject to every human power. You notice that? The Bible isn't saying to us, anyone who is stronger than you, you need to submit to them. Uh, Kids on the playground, it's not saying anyone who's bullying you, you just need to just submit to them. It's not saying anyone who has a gun, anyone who is stronger, who simply is in your life and says that they have power over you, then you need to listen. That's not what it's saying. It's speaking about people in positions of legitimate authority. But notice the extent to which this command reaches. To the kinds of people that we should submit to in those positions of authority, the second half is, is the toughest part. Not only to the good and to the gentle, but also to the unjust. That seems tough. I mean, probably all of us, uh, adults in the room, have been in some sort of situation where there's been a toxic work environment or maybe a learning situation where it's, it's a toxic environment. Very difficult boss, very difficult teacher. I've spoken uh, with many people over the years that have come for prayer saying, I just, I need wisdom. I'm not sure what to do. I just hate going to work. It's so difficult. They're praying for wisdom and for perseverance. I remember hearing uh, what I think is, probably the, the worst story I've heard. This didn't happen here in our church, thankfully, but this is a story I heard on a podcast about a horrible boss. Uh, his name was Steve Rauchy. Uh He was uh, the head of the facilities department in the Schenectady School District in New York. Okay, so he was in charge of everyone for the school district, all the carpenters, plumbers, you know, electricians that would maintain the schools. He had about 100 people underneath him. The administrators loved Steve Roche because he kept costs very, very low, and part of the way he did that was to not heat the buildings really very much at all. There were stories of like in the old high schools in the basement, people could see their breath. But if you tried to bring in a space heater, he would have his maintenance guys going around, they would grab it and cut the cord. And they would say, it's against school district policy. So, so everything was very cheap, but it was, it was not good to be underneath Steve Rocci. All of the people worked for him, they described him as, as a tyrant, basically. That he ruled his little kingdom uh, just like he was a mafia boss. Uh, He had uh, very strong consequences for those who would go against him. So if he didn't like you, he would do things like send you to the high school to clean the cafeteria for weeks on end. He would just keep you there. He was in charge of everyone's job assignments, and he had a really uh, wicked sense of humor. He would do these uh, horrible practical jokes on people, embarrass people, send horrible emails about people. He would even vandalize people's cars. Uh, he, there's stories of him lighting fireworks off uh, on people's cars, underneath their cars. Even went so far as spray painting houses. He had a Christmas party where in his speech to his, his whole group of you know, employees, he went through all the people that he had fired just so that they would know who was in charge. This is the kind of guy he was. They wonder, how did he survive so long? Well, because he kept saving everyone money. They, they would try to talk about him, but no one believed them until finally things got so bad that the police got involved. They began to investigate him. He was charged eventually with 22 felonies. Here's a picture of him uh, at his trial. Uh, you can see that uh, he didn't look like a happy guy. <laughs> That's Steve Rachi there. So I say that simply to, to make clear look, there are a lot of horrible, horrible bosses that make our lives miserable. I mean, the stories of these people in the trial, the impact statements of just what it was like to, to, to work under him, I mean, there was real traumatic stress for those people and that is a that is reality. And what we need to wrestle with is, is what is this text saying about that kind of thing? Is it saying that, that we should just put up with it? That we should just roll over and take it? I mean, what about bosses who do illegal things or want us to do illegal things, What about instances of abuse or harassment? What about coaches that run practices like military drill sergeants, teachers that make kids cry? Like, how do we, we, what's our response? What should it be? Does God just want us to take it, to submit? Well, a couple of clarifications for this first point. God does want us to submit with respect, but not, not to the point of sin. Okay, we saw this again last week. Our allegiance is ultimately to God. It's the word of God that we follow above every other human command. So if we are being asked or instructed to do something that is, that is sin, as Christians, we, we need simply to respond, I'm sorry, I, I can't submit. I can't do that. I won't do that. Sometimes that's easier um, to identify than other times. For example, you know things like falsifying reports lying to customers, cheating people, all those kinds of things tend to be fairly clear. Like we, we know that it's wrong. It's not, it doesn't make it easy to say no, but it makes it clear at least. But there's other situations or sometimes it's harder. Like I know there's a number of people in our church that work in the TV and film industry. And over the years, I've heard stories. It's hard to hold the line morally in that kind of an industry. Uh, when you're involved in the production or when you're an actor on set, I know there's people who've said to me, actors said, you know, I've had to say no to a lot of scripts. I've just had to tell my agent there's certain things that I won't do and it makes it hard in the industry. Not only do they have to give up money, but also people are like, oh, that, that person's difficult to work with. Or worse, if you're on set and they decide to change things, right? Let's, let's change the scene around. All of a sudden, they're asking you to do something that you, you don't feel comfortable doing. That isn't, isn't good. That's a difficult thing to, to hold the line and say, I'm sorry, I, I can't do that. Especially, especially if the director or the producer are very difficult, are harsh, are, are abrasive. And yet our call is above all to be people of integrity. Above all to, to say, I'm, I'm sorry, there are certain things that I, that I will not do. I, I'm gonna be respectful, I'm gonna honor those in authority, but I'm not going to go submit to the point of sin. The other qualification is, is that we are to submit with respect, but, but not necessarily if there are other options. Meaning this, this call to submit doesn't mean that we shouldn't look for a better job or try to make things better at our, at our job, right? If we're working in a toxic environment, it's, it's a good thing to try to make things better, to have, to have meetings, or maybe just to look elsewhere. In fact, uh, these are Paul's instructions to those who are bondservants at that time with very little rights. Look at what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21. Paul says, were you a bondservant when you were called? Like when you became a Christian, were you in service to someone, in bondage to someone? He says, do not be concerned about it. Meaning, look, you're now free in Christ. Don't worry too much about that, but look at his next instru- instruction. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of that opportunity. He's saying, if you can get out, that, that's better. You should go and do that. I think we know, though, that that's easier said than done sometimes. Like there's lots of situations for lots of different reasons where we just can't get out. I mean, it, it may be that, that the people above our manager just aren't listening to our complaints. Kind of like the Steve Rocchi situation. People tried to bring it to the upper management, they didn't listen. It could be that uh, this job that you have is the best paying job that you can find and you just need the money. You you need to stay here. You need to provide for your family or whatever the situation may be. It may be that this job is a step in your career path. You just, you have to spend some time here if you want to go to your ultimate goal or maybe you love the job. But just this new manager has made it Horrible. Or maybe you're in a class with a teacher that's making your life miserable, but you you need this class to graduate. It's too late to switch. There's lots of reasons why we just are are stuck in a certain situation. And that's why Peter's instructions apply to us even even today. He's speaking to us in those kinds of situations. So what do we do then? What do we do when we are forced, in a sense, to endure unjust sorrows, like, like it says in our text? Well, clearly we are to submit. But notice some of the some of the details that that Peter gives us. He gives us a reminder that suffering for good behavior is one thing, but suffering for bad behavior, that's always on us. Uh, Notice what it says in verse 20. He says, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? He's giving us very practical instructions here because he knows. He knows that human beings are our typical response. When there's someone who's unjust, abrasive, harsh, over top of us is to stop doing a good job. He knows our typical response in those kind of situation is to say, well, then forget it. I I mean, I I can't leave this job, but it doesn't mean I have to work hard at it. Our temptation is to give in to the the voices, probably of people around us, who are saying, come on, let's take an early lunch. What, What does it matter? They treat us like garbage here anyway. Why? Why do you worry so much? Just call in sick tomorrow. Right? Just just slack off. Why why wouldn't you? It's the same thing at school, right? Just cut, just cut class tomorrow. Mr. So-and-so, Mrs. So-and-so, they they're not teaching us anything anyway. Right? They're always getting mad at us anyway. What's, What's the point? This is typical, but what Peter's highlighting here is that it invites consequences from those in authority. And we deserve those consequences even if they are unjust, even if, even if we feel like we're justified in our actions. What he's saying to us is in the face of difficult leaders, God calls us to something far better, to submit in a particular way. And here's our second point. We are to submit with respect, but number two, we should follow the example of Jesus. This is really what he's saying. Look at verse 21. He says, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his footsteps. Now, this is a really helpful principle. This is, what it's saying here might sound familiar, is basically, you should, you should think to yourself, what would Jesus do in this situation, and then you should do it. My hesitancy, though, about saying it that way is that, I don't know what it is about Christian culture, but we tend to take really great things like this and make them lame. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I just went online to look for some, you know, Christmas gifts, and here's what I found. Some what would Jesus do merchandise, okay? There's keychains, there's bracelets, there's a tumbler that says, what would Jesus do? And you can't see it, but it says, maybe flip a table. Maybe that's what Jesus would do, because the, in the temple, right? There's, there's all these kind of merchandise that over the years means that WWJD now has become empty and trite and kind of lame, but, but really it's not. Look at this. I mean, it's so vibrant, such a rock solid instruction, such a great principle of faith. The flow of thought here is so clear. Um, The calling our lives is not just to believe in Jesus, but to actually follow in his ways, actually to do what he would do in any given situation. So, just as he suffered under unjust authorities, for our good, we should be willing to do the same. Everyone understands there are many challenges that come from working or learning in a toxic environment. But what we're seeing here is there are also opportunities to show the people around us who we follow, to show people what's what's different about us. Because Jesus was very different. He, he acted differently, especially on the road to the cross. Okay, even though his his journey to the cross was filled with with injustice and sorrows and mistreatment and violence and and anger, he did not respond in the way that most people would respond. Here's a little section from Matthew 27 when Jesus is is being interrogated by Pilate, by the other uh, leaders at the time. Uh, Matthew 27, verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Look at how our text describes, I think it's describing this, almost this exact scene. Look at the way it describes Jesus. Here's our text, verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I don't know about you, but that challenges me. That challenges me in in the way that I respond to difficult people in my life, difficult people in authority. I mean, think about it. Have, Have we been ridiculing those who've mistreated us? Have we been reviling them? Have we been cursing under our breath or holding back our work? Have we justified our sinful actions because of of their sin or their injustices? Or have we been thinking to ourselves, I wonder what Jesus would do in this situation? Because when people saw Jesus on the road to the cross, they were amazed. They couldn't understand what was going on. I mean, he, he didn't try to justify himself. He didn't rail against his accusers. He didn't didn't scream about the injustice. He he was silent. He was composed. He prayed for those who nailed him to the cross. How did he respond this way? How could he do that? Well, Well, we're told. We're told in verse 23, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. That is to God the Father. He entrusted himself to God the Father. Now that word entrust is worth thinking about. Because it means uh, to hand over. So you can think of it this way. Imagine uh, that you had a very valuable Pokemon card, for example. something very. very there are some very valuable Pokemon cards. Um, if you were to entrust that to someone, to your friend, or maybe to your parents, you, it means you would hand it over to them. Here, I'm handing this over to you. I'm trusting you to take good care of it. That's, that's what was hap- that happened to Jesus. He was handed over over and over and over again by the people who were in charge of him. That that idea was clearly there. In fact, sometimes the language in the text was there. For example, Judas handed Jesus over to the priests to to be tried. Then the priests handed Jesus over to Pilate to be judged and sentenced. And then Pilate handed Jesus over to the soldiers to be crucified. But Jesus was at peace with that because he had already handed himself over to God the Father. He had already entrusted himself to God the Father. Which means that he wasn't interested in saving himself or justifying himself or getting revenge. What he was interested in doing was revealing the grace and the hope of God to humanity. Even to those people who were treating him that way. See, he knew that in the end, all sin would be judged perfectly and so it gave him the strength to persevere in his call to endure the cross for the good of humanity, for the, for the glory of God. And it's the same with us. This is the comparison that Peter is making. It's the same with us. We, we can, we should entrust ourselves to God, the sovereign judge, the loving father, and then look for opportunities to endure injustice with grace, with humility so that we can reveal Jesus to the people around us. So, so they, can, they can see the one that we follow in the way that we're acting, in the way that we're treating them. This, this gets us to our third, third answer. How should we respond to difficult leaders? Uh, we should seek to make Jesus known. That, that's really what we're being called to here. We should seek to make Jesus known. So, here's one example practically of, of how this can happen in a difficult work situation. Um, I can't remember if I told this story before, but it really struck me. I heard this a number of years ago. It was a story about a uh, project manager, big company in New York City. And, um, and there was, things didn't go well with the project that this manager was managing. Uh, he had a big team under him, and one of his team members made a big mistake. And it kind of wrecked the whole deal, cost the company some money, cost some credibility. And the people above the project manager, they were upset. They, they wanted to know what happened. Who was responsible for this? He got a lot of pressure. But he decided in the moment that he wasn't going to give them a name of the person on his team. He said, look, it's my, it was my project. I'll take the responsibility. I'll take the hit. Afterwards, after the dust settled, uh, the person who really was responsible came to him in his office and said, uh, thank you for that, but like, why, why did you do that? And he said, he said well, look, you're, you're really new to the company. I've been here a long time. He said, I, I just knew that I could take the hit, and it, it wouldn't do too much damage to me, but, but probably for you, it'd, it'd be really significant. Like, You might have lost your job. So I, just, I, thought it would, I thought it was better this way. And the person said, again, thank you, but, but why would you do that? Like, I've never seen someone do that before. Why, why would you stick your neck out like that? And, and the guy kind of hummed it hawed a little bit. That, but finally, he said, well, look, I, look I'm, a, I'm a Christian. And I follow Jesus, and this is how Jesus treated me. He, he took the responsibility for my sin. And so I, I try to treat people like that. And the response from this person was, what church do you go to? And, and they started coming to church. They came to faith. See, when things are difficult, when things go wrong, when we're put under a lot of pressure from those above us, there are actually a lot of opportunities to reveal Jesus to the people around us. The problem, though, the problem is that we usually miss them. We usually miss them because we're so focused on ourselves. We're so focused on protecting ourselves, on on justifying ourselves. But what we see here in this text is that as Christians, we should have different goals in mind. We should be looking in every situation, good or bad, for opportunities to make Jesus known to those around us. And that's only going to happen if we act like Jesus and if we talk about Jesus. It's only going to happen if we actually internalize the, the love and the grace of Christ, all that he did to suffer for us so that we would be willing to suffer for others. When we're shaped by the cross, when we pray, Lord, help me to help me take my eyes off myself, even the difficult situations and look for opportunities to make much of you, they are there. And the amazing thing about this, the amazing thing, this call of God to endure suffering, it doesn't, it's not just about making Jesus known to other people. It is. It is. Clearly, there are opportunities like that where we can, we can suffer willingly for the sake of others and have opportunity. Not always. We don't know how they're going to take it, but opportunities for them to see Jesus. But the other amazing thing is that in doing this, we make Jesus known to ourselves also. see so if you're a Christian here this morning, you, you know Jesus. You should know who he is. You know how he acted. You know what he, what he did for you. But the goal of our lives is to know him more deeply, to know him more fully. And, and this is where Peter takes us in the last part of our text. Look at verses 24 and 25, last two verses. He says this to Christians, who know the gospel he reminds them he says he himself jesus he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls now that language uh, is is really a paraphrase of isaiah 53 Speaking about the prophecy of Isaiah, famous prophecy back in the Old Testament that was hinting at the redemptive plan of God, of Jesus, before anyone knew what it was going to look like. There was this servant, the Messiah that would come and suffer for the sins of the people. So really what Peter is pointing us to is the very core of Christianity, the essence of the gospel, that we are all afflicted by sin. That we are all rebellious in our hearts towards God. That we are all under the just consequences of sin, which is death forever. But Jesus bore those sins in his body. That he he was beaten, he was whipped, he was crucified so that sin would be taken care of. So that we would die to sin and now live in Christ. As a Christian, we know this. But it's one thing to know that Jesus suffered for us. It's another thing to have an opportunity to partake in that kind of suffering. It's one thing to know that Jesus humbled himself on a cross for you. It's another thing to experience the humility of suffering in difficult situations in in that kind of way. See, we never want those kind of situations. We never want those kind of experiences. But it's actually good for our soul. It's good for our soul to be confronted with a situation that we cannot escape from, that we cannot change, and we have to humble ourselves to the point of respectful submission. Because as we do that, we come to know Jesus more fully. We we have opportunity for others to know him, sure, but we, we know him more. We draw nearer to him. We draw in his strength. We appreciate more fully what he did in actually dying for us in that unjust, horrible way. See, so remember, remember again who's writing this? It's Peter. Impulsive Peter, impetuous Peter, sword fighting Peter. Peter knows what he's talking about. Peter has lived a life of this kind of submission. He's he's followed the call of God on his life. He was shown mercy, and then Jesus said, come, feed my sheep, establish the church. He's done that for years. Do you know how Peter died? It's not recorded in the Bible, but in in church history, in in the history books, we're told that about 30 years after Jesus went back up to heaven and said, Peter, go, establish the church, Uh, Peter was arrested by Nero, the same emperor that that he told everyone to honor, arrested by him, and he was put to death. And he received that sentence of death with humility. And we know that because of his request. The sentence of death was for him to be crucified. Peter's only request, he didn't didn't fight it, his only request was, "I I don't count myself as worthy to be killed in the same way as my savior. Can you crucify me upside down? And that's what they did. That he so wanted to honor the Lord and yet still walk in his ways that he was crucified upside down. See, what Peter's writing and what his life shows us is that the cross isn't just an answer for our sin, it's actually the way forward for our life of faith. Because in our willingness to suffer for Jesus, we make clear that our hope is no longer in this life. That's what he's saying. In our willingness to submit in this way, we're saying, look, my hope is not in this stuff. It's not in this job. It's not even in the respect that other people give me. Not in the money. Not in this education. It's in none of that. It's in Christ. I have a greater hope. A greater glory. So I can endure whatever is going to happen here in this life as a calling, as an assignment from God. And look for every opportunity to make much of him. This is how Paul says it. Philippians 1.20, he says, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He's saying, whatever happens, whether I'm still alive and suffering, whether I'm put to death, my, my goal, I need the courage, what I want to see happen is that Christ will be honored. Look, I know, I know that we're not under the threat of death. I, I hope we're not. But we do have many difficult situations. I know many here are under difficult situations at work. Difficult situations with someone above us in authority and it's just, it's making life miserable. It's excruciating. Listen clearly to the call of God in your life. Number one, can you change the situation? You should try to change it. You should do that. You should have meetings. You should appeal to higher authorities in your organization. You should should express your concerns. Do whatever you can. If you can find another job, you should do that. You should do anything and everything you can in a respectful way to make things better. But if you are stuck, if those doors are not opening, then resist the urge to get bitter and resentful. Resist the temptation to respond in sin, to start slacking off, to start slandering the people in authority over you and submit with all respect. How? By entrusting yourself to your Father. By remembering that by the wounds of Christ, you've been healed. And by realizing that even in these dark times, maybe especially in these dark times, there are opportunities to make Jesus known to the people around you. And as you try to do that, you, you will come to know him more. You will grow in good character. You will grow in your faith. You will grow in your love for Christ in ways that you never, never have before. You will see him as the good shepherd, as the overseer of your soul. I'm gonna pray for us to that end now. Uh, Lord Jesus, I do pray for us. Lord, it's, it's so hard in situations where we are being treated unfairly, unjustly, where people are getting away with things in our lives, where those in authority that we just, we just can't get out from underneath it, Lord, I, I pray you'd help us. I pray you'd help those here this morning that are, that are enduring. I pray, Lord, for a faithfulness to endure without sin, not, not to be led into sin, not to respond in sin, but to indeed submit respectfully. I pray for the, for the capacity to, to take our, our eyes up off of ourselves and put them on you and, and to look at the people around us and to realize they need you and that this may just be the only opportunity or, or at least the significant opportunity for them to see something different from someone who has been impacted by the cross. Lord, help us with that. And I do pray, Lord, for those that are mistreating others. I, I pray for Steve Rochi, who's in, in prison right now. Lord, I pray you would humble hearts. I pray you'd bring repentance. I pray as people come into into contact, hopefully close contact with others who've been redeemed, that they themselves would be humbled, that they would confess sin. We we pray, Lord, that you would be honored in our lives, even in our death, so that more people would be saved and so that you would be honored. I pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.